0: Okay, we obviously are in 1 Corinthians 6: 12 through 20. Last week we Hold on a second. I'm sorry. Okay. Two weeks ago, we took a deep dive into verses 11 and 12, along with the first part of verse 13, if you remember. Paul is speaking to those in the church at Corinth who are sinning with their bodies by way of sexual immorality. That's the context. And Paul tells them in the second part of verse 13 that the body is not, not to be used for such sinful things because the body, Paul says, is not for immorality, but instead the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And then in verse 19... Paul tells them that their bodies are temples or sanctuaries for the Holy Spirit who dwells in them, and as such, they are not their own, but instead they belong to Christ. You belong to Christ because we have been bought with a price. Therefore, Paul says to the Corinthians, they should be glorifying God in their bodies. And, of course, the same goes for us today. But what does this actually mean, the totality of it, that you've been bought with a price and you're not your own? It means that our bodies are included in the full redemptive work of christ our bodies are included in the full redemptive work of christ it means that the moment you are declared i'm sorry the moment you are redeemed god acquires ownership of you and so what was the currency for this ownership for this i should say transaction whereby God acquired your body. The currency was Christ's blood poured out for you on Calvary's hill. Plain and simple. Do you remember our last sermon, we talked about the doctrine of justification. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says that we have been justified by his blood. Paul tells the Colossians that we have peace with God through the blood of Christ's cross. Think about that for a minute. We have peace with God the Father through the blood of Christ's cross. That's Colossians 1.20. And then in Colossians 1.22, Paul says that we are not only reconciled to God through Christ but we are presented before him as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So you see, we are positionally declared, justified, like we talked about, before Almighty God as holy and blameless by the blood of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we are given a beautiful picture of the Holy Trinity in the context of Christ's atoning blood. In verse 14, it says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God the Father to cleanse your conscience from dead works so that you can serve the living God. I quoted verse 14 of Hebrews 9 because I want you to see how the entire trinity, the triune Godhead, is at work through the shed blood of Christ. I quote all of these scriptures so that you can have a good grasp of the theology as well as the application of that theology in your lives you can't have one without the other and expect to properly understand your relationship with the Lord okay so what do we have so far so far you've been justified as righteous before God by the blood you have peace with God through the blood? Your conscience has been cleansed by the blood. And what else comes with this blood purchase that God has made? Well, surely you have seen um, these commercials on TV, may have heard them on the radio, um, where you are incessantly Enticed to buy gold and silver, right? Um, they say that the American dollar isn't worth anything, and the worldwide economy is unstable, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that may be true or untrue. I don 't know, not an economist, but what I do know is that in First Peter chapter one verses eighteen and nineteen. Peter says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, verse 19, but instead with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. So you, Peter says, are not your own. You've been bought with a price, and that price is Christ's blood. So you can say, wow, because you can't get any more specific than that. It's Christ's blood. And what you have, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, is not only... Superior to gold and silver, but also to everything else in the universe, it's superior. You have the most priceless treasure, eternal salvation. That's your treasure. Eternal salvation of your soul. Doesn't matter what William Devane says or how much gold Roslyn Capital sells. Am I the only one that has seen those commercials? Okay. They're on like every two seconds. So uh, what else can we glean from this text this morning? Well, we learned that since we have been redeemed by this blood of the spotless Lamb of God, we now have someone taking up residence in us, right? Somebody's taken up residence in us. And who might that be? The Holy Spirit, of course, is in us. In verse 19, Paul tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to replace that word temple this morning with the word sanctuary. We are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And why am I doing that? Because I believe that what, what Paul is doing here is drawing a parallel. You have to listen to this carefully. He's drawing a parallel between the Jewish temple sanctuary and our bodies as temple sanctuaries. And why do I think that? Well, the first reason is because the Greek word that Paul has chosen here carries the connotation of a sanctuary. And if you are using the New American Standard Bible, you will see a footnote whereby the translators point out that the word temple in verse 19 is actually synonymous with the word sanctuary. They're the same thing. But in English a sanctuary carries more weight in regard to holiness and being set apart for something to dwell in it, especially for God to dwell in it. The second reason is because Exodus 25, 8, excuse me, um, Exodus 25, 8, the Lord tells the Israelites to create a sanctuary for him so that He can dwell among them. So God dwells in the sanctuary. Now, Paul was, of course, aware of this, okay, uh, from the truths that he writes about and the nomenclature that, that he uses and that was once used in Exodus. He knows all about Exodus. So when God inspired Paul to write to the Corinthians and say that their bodies should be a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit... I can't uh, imagine Paul not drawing the parallel here in his mind between God dwelling in the temple temple sanctuary and God dwelling in your body as a sanctuary, the Holy Spirit dwelling. By by the way, the body, remember, that has been purchased, okay? Now, your sanctuary of God, and that's a very, very big deal to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's something that I would ask that throughout this upcoming week, you would meditate on. Meditate on the fact that you are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit and that he dwells in you. Absolutely, Nothing less can vouch for the authenticity of your salvation. If you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and if your body is a sanctuary for God, then you're saved. You could be confident in that. In 2 Samuel 6, we see God kill Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, Uzzah. And why did God kill Uzzah? For irreverently reaching out to support the ark of the Lord because the ox that was carrying the ark down a hill was tilting to one side. And in Uzzah's mind, there was a possibility present that the ox might upset the ark completely. So Uzzah probably, I would think instinctively, reaches out to try to prevent this, the ark falling off the cart, and God strikes him dead for touching the ark. This ark was where the Holy One, the Almighty God, of Israel was dwelling among his people. And God, which, by the way, had already instructed Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 4 to not let any of the men touch any of the holy articles of that ark while transporting it, let alone... Put the ark on a cart. It wasn't supposed to be carried on a cart. Uh, God gave specific instructions for how it was to be carried by poles, okay, prescribed by God, as I said, on the shoulders of the Levites, the, the priest. Uh, just so, the poles were just so, they couldn't touch it when they carried it. So here's Uzzah, who, as I said, probably had good intentions, but he was still violating God's very specific instructions, and God struck him dead for it. This is how serious God is about us revering him. Or should I say, not revering him. For a mere sinful man or woman to touch the very dwelling place of the holy almighty God was an impure act toward which was holy, or I should say was holy. It defiled the dwelling place of the Lord. I pray that you see, I'm I'm trying to draw a parallel of this defilement in the Old Testament with our text in the New Testament, because in reality, the Corinthians were defiling their bodies through sexual immorality. They're doing the same thing that Uzzah was doing. They were touching the holy place of God, the dwelling place of the holy God, with A body that was committing, willfully committing sin. And the bodies of the Corinthians, where the Holy Spirit took up residence, were defiled if they were habitually sinning sexually, which is what some of them were doing. It wasn't just the guy that was sleeping with his um, stepmother, it was also people who were um, participating in the temple prostitution in the city of Corinth, which was very common. So that same God that struck a dead is living in you and me. And if you are an authentic, real, born-again Christian, then you've got... To understand that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. Fortunately for us, and unlike Azza, although we were born in that same sinful lineage of Adam that he was, our sins have been washed away by that blood that I rambled about for the first five minutes. Our great high priest, Christ, the new Adam, rent the the temple veil, the temple curtain, into from top to bottom when he died on the cross. For those of you who do not know, that heavy curtain, that temple veil, that I'm speaking of, it was in the temple at Jerusalem, and it separated the second room, the Holy of Holies, from the first room, which was called the Holy Place. And there, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant that Uzzah had touched, that embodied, that Ark, that embodied the very presence of Almighty God. And as such, it radiated God's Shekinah glory. And the word she- Shekinah means, quote, he caused to dwell, end quote. It's a word that's not in the Bible. It was created by uh, Jewish rabbis during the intertestamental period, which was the 450 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And in the Old Testament, the Jews used this word to describe the presence of God. Okay? So it is somewhere in the Old... When the Old Testament's referred to, it is said that they've described... Uh, the presence of God. I'm talking about extra-biblical writings, okay? Uh, writings other than the Bible itself. Now, um, they used this word to describe more specifically the pillar of smoke and fire in Exodus 13, and they used it to describe the burning bush in Exodus 3, among other places. It's also used to describe God's dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant. Which brings us back to the Ark. On, on the Ark's top, okay, was a lid called the mercy seat. And this was where the high priest sprinkled the sacrificial blood of the bull once a year on the Day of Atonement. As he prayed for what? For God to forgive the sins of his people. For God to have mercy on his people and forgive them of their sins. And in Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 51, we are told that when Jesus died, that temple veil was torn from top to bottom amidst an earthquake that took place right after Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross. And you can reference Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 for that, which we're going to read in a moment. Now, why did this happen? Why was the veil or the curtain split between the holy place and the holy of holies? Please listen, my Catholic friends, okay? especially, it was to show that no earthly priest is any longer needed to plead for the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us why in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, I'll read it. Therefore, brethren, since you have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. There's the blood again. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through, listen, through the veil that is his flesh, Christ's flesh, metaphor for the veil. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, because Jesus, the great high priest, has made it so that we can enter into God's holy presence by way of his blood, which was again shed for our sins. Romans six twenty-three. And by that great high priest, Jesus, the Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection, we can enter into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of Almighty God. We can enter into where that Shekinah glory dwells. And the Bible says we can do it boldly, not sheepishly. Boldly, without being struck dead, like Azza. Listen again to what the author of Hebrews says, okay? But this time, we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, like I just read. But instead, I'm sorry, we are not going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, like I just read. But instead, we are going to go backwards, okay? In the text, in the chapter 19, we're going to go backwards to verses 4 through 9, which says, beginning in verse 4, listen, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, But you prepared for me, for Christ, with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You are not pleased. He's speaking to the Father. Then I said, here I I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. That's Psalm 46 through 8 in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And in verses 8 and 9, after saying the above, He says again, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, by the way. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Takes away that law in order to establish this new covenant. And by that will, verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why I mentioned my Roman Catholic friends. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties and again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, one, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, verse 14 says, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's you. Okay? You are being made holy. That's the sanctification process. And that great high priest, Christ, died for you. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's Jeremiah 31, 34, Isaiah 43, 25, Micah 7, 18, and 19. All through the Old Testament, this is prophesied. This is spoken about. This great high priest offering himself as a sacrifice for your sins by his blood, buying you, purchasing you with his blood. Verse 19, therefore, I'm going to read it again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, remember, we can enter boldly. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold unwaveringly, folks, to the hope we profess. You profess it, Believe it, hold on to it, unwaveringly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the second coming, approaching. Verse 26 and 27, we deliberately, if we deliberately, if we deliberately keep on sinning, habitually sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So he gives all these beautiful promises. And then he says, but beware. If you don't fit the bill, if you're not living the born-again life, then something may be off. And if it's off, and if you continue in it, and you continue to sin and you don't repent, then There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, those that persevere to the end are saved. And those that do not, weren't. You understand what I'm saying? So, we've been blood-bought. We're forgiven. Unlike Uzzah, you can not only touch the ark of God, you can... Go into the Holy of Holies and present your petitions in prayer to Almighty God because of Jesus, your great high priest, because he secured for you all of these blessings, all of these promises through his atoning blood sacrifice. Okay? That's what you have. Now, you might be wondering. How that's done, given that we still live in this earthly sinful tent, okay? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's how it's done. Plain and simple. God Almighty has taken up reverence in you, or I'm sorry, residence in you, okay? Just look at the text. You could see that plainly everywhere, okay? And... You don't have to go back, you won't go back to the way it was, to the way you used to live in habitual, willful sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. He lives in you, you are one with him. That's the first thing, Okay. That needs to be understood. You are one with the Holy Spirit. Now, what else does Paul say? Well, in the very next verse, in 1 Corinthians six, eighteen, he says, uh, We flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And as such, the Bible says, uh, folks, that we must not fulfill the desires of our flesh. Okay? Now listen to what Paul says to the Romans. After Paul tells them not to live in the flesh, just like he tells the Corinthians, he says to the Romans in chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is lengthy, but I can add there, but I want want you to really let these verses sink in in the context of what we're talking about this morning. Beginning in Romans 8, 9, he says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, But in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, this tent is subject to death because of sin, Paul says, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Okay, so he's saying, The body's subject to death because of sin while you're still in this earthly tent. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in you gives life because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you while you're in this earthly tent. You haven't fully, it hasn't been fully consummated. It will the day that you die. But the Holy Spirit still lives in you and that righteousness is still there. Verse 11, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus From the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit who lives in you lives in you. You with me? Then he says in verse 12 Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Your body is going to, your flesh, you dwelling in this earth, you're going to sin. But you have to put to death those sins, those misdeeds of the body, and you can Do so, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Remember, we live in boldness. We go before the throne with confidence. So, we don't live in fear. Rather, Paul says, the Holy Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, your sons and daughters of Christ. You've been adopted. Remember, you've been bought with a price. Okay? And by him, by that spirit, Paul says, we cry, Abba, Father. You know the word Abba means daddy. Okay? Verse 16, the spirit himself... The Holy Spirit himself that lives in you testifies with your spirit that you are God's children. Now, if we are children, verse 17, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Yes, the life of the Christian is a life of suffering. In this context, suffering, because we're always going to be battling sin as long as we're in this body, this earthly body. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation, not just us, when we sin, we groan, right? The whole creation groans, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though we've got the Holy Spirit living in us, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, again, we haven't received it all yet. We're redeemed, but we still have this body that we have to live in on this earth. For in this hope, the hope of the consummation of our bodies, the hope of the consummation of our salvation, okay? That's what he's saying here. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen, listen, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Paul says, Who hopes for what they already have? Verse 24. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we don't have yet the fullness, the fullness of that redemption because we're not in heaven with Christ. Okay? That's what he's saying. He says, We wait patiently for it. We wait patiently. In verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Sometimes we get weak waiting. Sometimes we get tired of groaning. We get tired of fighting. This world, this flesh, the devil. We get tired of this tent. I do. I hope you do. And he says in those times, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. When you're at your breaking point, when you feel like giving up on God, when you feel like this Christian life is too much, and you're tired and you're weary, The Holy Spirit that lives in you intercedes for you to the Father with wordless groans that God understands. He gets it. And he who searches our hearts, Paul says, knows the mind of the Spirit. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So here you've got the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is interceding for you with groans, wordless groans. And the Father's going to show the Holy Spirit and us how to pray according to the will that he's mapped out for our lives. Folks, we're either a bunch of nuts, you know, or this is true. I don't think there's any other options, okay? He searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Verse 28, and we know that in all things, all these things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He loves you through the sins that you fight with. He loves you through your weariness. He loves you through your groaning. He loves you enough to have sent his son to purchase you With his blood. And he loves you enough to have a purpose for you. And not only have a purpose for you, but to bring that purpose about through his Holy Spirit, which dwells in you. So, Spirit lives in you, Spirit intercedes for you on behalf of you, but on behalf of the Father. With all of this, the last 20 minutes, Why then would any professing Christian in their right mind seek to make a mockery of Christ's shed blood and contaminate the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit with sexual immorality? Folks, this is the theology behind our text And it's important. This is what Paul's asking the Corinthians, okay? In other words, if you're defiling your temple sanctuary, whereby the Holy Spirit of God resides, I beg you, please, repent. Repent of that sin and turn from it. Forgiveness is promised. does First John 1 9 say if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness however as I read if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment Milano paraphrase, God ain't playing. Don't get me wrong. If you want to live like us, you can. You can touch that which is holy with sin. But don't, don't be surprised if God doesn't intervene and chastise you. Because he will. If you're truly his, he will. I use the nice word chastise. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses the word punish. <laughs> anyway, so with that said, I'm closing. Again, look at verse 13 of our text. 1 Corinthians six thirteen. The body is not for fornication or sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. People take this verse out of context all the time. They say that you shouldn't eat that chocolate cake. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's got nothing to do with cake. It's sexual immorality. It's fornication. That's the context, not cake. Sorry. <laughs> Drives me batty. Anyway, remember next.